We continue our series on worship this morning. Just to remind you or bring you up to speed, last week we talked about how important corporate worship is. And I made a bold claim. Corporate worship is the most important hour in a Christian's week. I may have come on too strong as I think about that, but hopefully I at least got you thinking about how important corporate worship is in your life and in the life of the church. When we meet as a church, we meet not only uh, together together as, as a body, but we meet to worship God. And when we do that, we are actually meeting with God in a special way that is different from our personal time with the Lord. We behold God in corporate worship. And as we behold Him by faith, we become more like Him. More specifically, we become more like His Son, Jesus. And that is the goal of discipleship. So corporate worship is really important. I hope that in the weeks ahead, you will continue to grow in your understanding of how important it is. And if it's so important, another logical question that I want to ask today is how should we worship when we gather together corporately? What should we do in corporate worship? That's what I want to talk about this morning. Some people would say, God does not care so much about the specific forms of worship He doesn't care about our style of worship. He doesn't even really care about the elements within our worship. We have freedom in all of those things. What God really cares about is sincerity, genuine worship, authentic worship. That's what matters to God. And it's true. God cares deeply about sincerity in our worship. You can read all parts of the Scriptures. Read the Psalms. Um, God cares deeply about our heart when we come to Him in worship. We can't simply go through the motions. It has to be worship from the heart. But is it true that God doesn't care how we worship Him so long as it's sincere? My proposition today is that God has revealed in His Word how His people are to worship Him, so we must worship by the Word. Or to put it another way, God has regulated our worship, so our worship must be regulated by God's Word. Sincerity is essential, but it's insufficient. We must seek to understand the way God has called us to worship Him. And then we must do it that way. We must worship Him in that way. We see this principle um, uh, that I have here on the screen. We see it in the Old Testament and in the New Testament in both the way God regulated Old Covenant worship and in the way that Christ regulates New Covenant worship. 
And so this morning to divide our time, I'm going to begin with Old Covenant worship in the Old Testament and then move on to New Covenant worship and see what remains the same, what is developed and changed. In in each of those sections, I will have two different points. I'm going to put a lot on the screen um, to help you, but I'm also going to ask that you have your Bible in your lap If you don't have a paper Bible, there's one in the pew, or you can use your phone. I want to show you a lot of things quickly. So we're going to, I'm going to tell you where to go, but we're going to be moving along together. So let's begin with Old Covenant worship. Here's my basic point. God regulates Old Covenant worship. Pretty basic point. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus so that I can show you this point. Exodus is where God established the Old Covenant, where He established His covenant with His people. When you think of the book of Exodus, you often think about redemption, right? I mean, that's what the title is referring to. God leading His people out of slavery in Egypt. The Exodus out of Egypt. But it's interesting that the Exodus part of Exodus is finished in chapter 15. There's still another 25 chapters within the book that are not specifically about redemption or the Exodus. And even the chapters on redemption show us that there was a bigger goal of God bringing His people out of slavery in Egypt. What was that bigger goal? It was worship. It was worship. So let me show you this. Look at chapter 3, which is the calling of Moses at Mount Sinai, in verse 12. This is what God says to Moses. But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, there's the Exodus, you shall serve God. On this mountain. That word for serve refers to worship. And then look at chapter 5, verse 1. This is when Moses first approached Pharaoh. Before the plague start, before he approaches him. He says to him in chapter 5, verse 1, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that's the Exodus, so that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. That's worship. Now, as the plagues begin in chapter 7, turn there. Verse 16, before the first plague, the Lord tells Moses what he should say to Pharaoh. This is what he says to him in verse 16. You shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. In almost all of the plagues, this exact phraseology is used. So what is the purpose of redemption? It is worship. God redeemed His people so that they may worship Him. So, it's no surprise, if that's the purpose of redemption, that God would then give instructions on how His people would worship Him. Directly, after the Exodus. And in fact, that's what he does. When they come to Sinai, he gives 
the law, the law covenant, but then he also gives detailed instructions about how he will be worshipped. We find this in chapters 25 to 31. Then, following the golden calf incident, in chapters 35 to 40, we see the construction of the tabernacle. So, instruction on the tabernacle where the people of God would meet with God and worship with God, and then the construction of that tabernacle in chapters 35 to 40. And at the end of chapter 40, Yahweh's Shekinah glory descends on the tabernacle. The Lord not only redeems, but He resides with His people so that they may worship Him. And His instructions are quite precise. Look at the beginning of chapter 25 where the instructions are given. Every detail is laid out in detail. God is clear. Everything must be done exactly as He says in the worship of Him. Chapter 25, verses 8 to 9, where the instructions begin. He says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all of its furniture. So you shall make it. This command, exactly as I showed you, is repeated throughout chapter 25 to 31, where the instructions are. Then, at the end of the construction section, so that's the first part, 25, then at the tail end, in chapter 40, turn there real quick, we're told that Moses did everything just the way God told him to do. Look at chapter 40, verse 16. This Moses did. According to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. And then at verse 19, we're told that Moses did as the Lord commanded him. There's a lot I could say about this, but that exact phrase is repeated seven times in chapter 40. It's very clear. God wants His redeemed people to worship Him. He reveals how They must worship Him. That is the main point. But it raises a logical question. What's at stake when God's people don't worship Him in God's way? And so here's the second thing we learn in this Old Covenant section. When worship isn't regulated by God's Word, it leads to idolatry. It leads to idolatry. And that's what we see in the middle of this section on instructions for worship in the tabernacle, construction of the tabernacle in the middle, beginning in chapter 32, you can turn there, we see that the people of God, instead of worshiping the way God had commanded, which He had already told them something about in the Ten Commandments, in chapter 20, they disregarded His commands about worship. Now, many see the golden calf incident is a violation of the first command. What's the first command? You shall have no other gods before me. And an example of worshiping false gods instead of the one true God is what some see is going on in chapter 32. And that could be the case. But there are a couple of hints in Exodus 32 that the people get this, 
may have been worshiping Yahweh through the golden calf, but worshiping Yahweh in their own way. They weren't just committing idolatry. They were worshiping God in an idolatrous way. Two hints of this in Exodus 32. First, notice in verse 1, the request the people make to Aaron. They say, up, make us gods who shall go before us. This was the language used of Yahweh when he went before the people in the wilderness. Wayne Grudem says the golden calf could be used as a physical representation of Yahweh showing our God, Yahweh, is strong. Like a calf, like a bull. Could be. Another clue that the golden calf was not a false god, but a wrong way to worship the true God is in verse 5. Notice Aaron says to the people, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. It's not a feast to the golden calf, but to the Lord using the golden calf as an image to worship God. So it could be that the golden calf is not so much a violation of the first commandment, have no other gods, but of the second commandment. Look back at chapter 20, verse 4. The Ten Commandments. You guys are doing a good job following along. This is what it says. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. The second command is not simply a command against making and worshiping false gods, idols. Many see it as a command against worshiping the true God in a false way. If it were simply another way of saying don't worship false gods, wouldn't the second commandment then be redundant with the first? So I think what's happening in Exodus 32 is they are using a golden calf to worship the one true God in an idolatrous and false way. And what happens is a result of them not worshiping God in the way that he has commanded, they are destroyed. We see something very similar in Leviticus chapter 10 with Nadab and Abihu. This is what it says in the first two verses. It's on the screen. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, they each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which the Lord had not commanded them. And fire came down out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. It's clear that their incense was offered before the Lord. They're not worshiping a false god. They are in service of the one true God in the tent of meeting in an unauthorized way. They are doing it their way. Maybe they were sincere. Maybe they weren't. We're not told. We're simply told they are worshiping God in a way that He has not commanded them, and therefore they are consumed. So it's clear. In the Old Covenant, the purpose of redemption was worship. 
Therefore, it's no surprise that God gave instructions on how to worship him. And old covenant worship was regulated by God's word. And when you don't worship God in God's way, it's tantamount to idolatry. And as we see here, quite dangerous. So what about worship in the new covenant? Has all of this changed? Have all of the regulations gone away? Well, yes and no. Many things, as we'll see, have changed. Many of the regulations have gone away, but the principle is upheld, and there are now different regulations for worship in New Covenant worship. The principle in the old continues in the new, but the application changes. So let's turn there now to the New Covenant worship. And this is the first point that I want to make. Christ now regulates New Covenant worship. I'd like to begin with Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman in John 4. Many of you are very familiar with the flow of the story. I'm not going to recount it, but basically Jesus asks the Samaritan woman for a drink. She's startled that a Jewish man would ask a Samaritan woman for a drink and thus ensues a discussion on a number of topics. The topic that they end with is the topic of worship. Look at verse 20 of John 4. John 4, verse 20. The Samaritan woman says to Jesus, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain there in Samaria. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus replies in such a way that teaches us a number of things about New Covenant worship. He says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. The only time in the New Testament we're told that the God is seeking something is here. What is He seeking? Such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So there are a few things that I want to highlight here. First, when Jesus says, you worship what you don't know, but we worship what we do know, what he's saying is the Samaritans are wrong about the place God has called them to worship. The true place of worship at that time was in Jerusalem, on Mount Zion, at the temple. It was not on Mount Gerizim or Mount Ebal where the Samaritans worshipped. Jesus is saying, he's validating the Old Covenant. He's saying that God has regulated the place of worship and the way of worship in the Old Covenant. All of the instructions that God gave about tabernacle worship in the wilderness, all the instructions about temple worship in Jerusalem, all of the stuff about priests and sacrifice, that was the way God called his people 
to worship him. And Jesus is saying all of that is still in effect right now. But he's also saying things are getting ready to change now that I have come. In the new covenant, worship will no longer be localized to the temple in Jerusalem. It will be in spirit and in truth. Most commentators see worshiping in spirit as worshiping in the Holy Spirit. And it's true. Our worship of God is through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit now resides in the people of God. But he's saying more than that here. What he's saying is that in the new covenant, worship, corporate worship will no longer be localized in Jerusalem. Something is changing in Jesus. Worship will now take place in many places, just like it's taking place right now. God has never been limited to a particular place, although he did regulate worship in a particular place in the Old Covenant. But now the Spirit, through the Spirit, through Christ, we will worship in many. In all of life, as we learned in Romans 12, all of life is worship to God. But also, as we learned last week, as churches gather around the risen Christ by the Spirit, God is present with his people in a special way, analogous to the way that he was present with the people during the feast at Jerusalem. The other thing about new covenant worship is that we'll be in truth. So spirit and truth. What does this mean? Does it mean true worship as opposed to false worship? Well, certainly it means that, but I think it's saying more. The more obvious answer is that worship now is in Christ. Now, why do I say that? Don Carson makes a point that in the Gospel of John, Jesus is the true vine. The vine that was spoken of in the Old Testament, Jesus is the true vine. Jesus is the true manna from heaven. Manna that was referred to in the Old Testament, it was pointing to him. He is the true shepherd. The shepherd, all other shepherds in the Old Testament, like Moses and and David, they were pointing to. He's the true temple. He's the place now where the people of God meet with God. He's the true son. The son spoken of in Psalm 2, Psalm 110. They were pointing to the true son, Jesus. So to worship in spirit and truth is first and foremost to say, we must worship God by the means of Christ. Like we said last week, we draw near to God through the blood of Christ. All of the forms of worship in the old covenant, they were pointing To Christ. They were God's way then, but they were doing more than that. They were anticipating and instructing about the way that we would worship Him now. We worship in Christ. It's no longer at Mount Zion in Jerusalem. As we learned last week, Christ is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God in the heavenly Jerusalem. And when we gather for worship, we are by the Spirit brought to the heavenly Jerusalem in some way that I don't understand, but the Bible says that it is true. We no longer come before God through priests. Jesus is our great high priest. We no longer draw near to God through sacrifices. In Christ, He is the once for all, perfect, all-sufficient 
sacrifice for sins. Friends, there is no other way to do the thing for which you were created to do, which is worship God, except through faith in what Christ did, who He is, what He did on the cross. So new covenant worship is in Christ. And it is also therefore regulated by Christ. Christ calls His disciples in the Great Commission to do everything that He has commanded. So in the same way that the Old Covenant people had to worship God exactly the way that God commanded them, the New Covenant people are called to worship God in the way that Christ has commanded them. Now, in the New Testament, we don't have a passage like Exodus 25-40. to We don't have a book like Leviticus that lays out the way that priests and sacrifice work in worship. But we're not left without instruction about how to worship in the New Testament. Jesus made commands. We find them in the Gospels. But not only that, we also find them in the writing of His appointed apostles who were commissioned to teach the church everything that He has commanded them to do to teach us what Christ wants the church to do when gathered for worship. And their teachings are written down in the New Testament. Here is a brief summary of what we are commanded to do. We must read, preach, pray, sing, and observe the ordinances. There's widely shared consensus, at least in the Reformed tradition, that Christ has called the church to read and to preach the Bible, to sing and to pray as worship unto God, and to observe the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. That is what the Lord revealed about what's required for worship. And it's not difficult to see that the New Testament calls for all of these elements. And I want to go over some of those passages. But before I do, before we get to the prescriptions, so to speak, for corporate worship, I want to draw your attention to a very familiar description of corporate worship in the New Testament. It's Acts 2.42. We see a description of the church gathered for worship, and it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The apostles' teaching was largely teaching that showed how the old covenant was fulfilled in Christ, how all of the Old Testament pointed to Him, how it was understood but also applied in light of Him. It's not just that all the Old Testament Scriptures are just to point to Christ. They give instruction on how we are to live, but how are we to live in light of the new covenant within Christ. Their teaching, as I said later, was written down. And thus, along with the Old Testament, the new and the old constitute the word that is to be read and taught in the gathered church. The fellowship. What is that? It could simply be that they were committed to one another in the body. The word here is koinonia, a familiar word to many of you. But koinonia can also refer to giving of offerings. You see that in Philippians, for example. And we know from other parts of Scripture that taking up an offering on the first day of the week was a practice in the early church. So it could have to do with offering. The breaking of bread certainly includes the Lord's Supper together 
as a church. And the final element in this description is prayer. So what we see described here, we see prescribed in the apostles' writings in the rest of the New Testament. I'm going to take you on a brief tour of this. In 1 Timothy 4.13, for example, Paul instructs Timothy how to pastor the church at Ephesus. And he says this, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. 2 Timothy 4.2, he commands Timothy to preach the Word, to be ready in season and out of season, which includes reproving, rebuking, and exhorting with complete patience, and with teaching. So in our corporate worship, this is part of how our corporate worship is regulated. It must include public reading of Scripture, not just preaching, public reading of Scripture, as well as the preaching of God's Word, who is set apart for that task. It should also involve praying and singing. 1 Timothy 2.1, Paul calls Timothy to urge the church at Ephesus to make supplications, intercessions, and thanksgiving for all people. This command is a call for public prayer in corporate worship. We know this because of what we read just a little bit later in 1 Timothy 3.15. Where Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you, including to one, so that if I delay, you will know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the buttress of truth. In Acts 2.42, we're not told that the church at Jerusalem sang, but praying and singing are really one thing, in two different forms. The Psalms teach us as much. And so it's no surprise that we see Paul commanding churches to sing. Not just saying you can. We're commanded to sing. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. I think this is by singing. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Now, I'm going to do a whole sermon in two weeks on that verse. But for now, I simply want to note that along with public prayers, we are called to congregational singing. This is part of how our worship is regulated by God's Word. Additionally, we're called to observe the ordinances We start to get a picture of this command to observe the ordinances, even in the Great Commission, where Jesus calls his apostle and by way of implication now calls the local church not only to go and make disciples of all nations, but also, as people come to Christ, to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Some see baptism in the Great Commission as bigger than what we do in corporate worship. Others see that baptism is intended to take place when the church is assembled in corporate worship. I tend to hold to the latter view, but regardless of that, what we know is that baptism ought to be included in what we do 
and corporate worship. Earlier, Jesus commanded his disciples to observe the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26. And Paul seems to take Jesus' teaching as referring to what we do in our corporate worship services. He mentions in 1 Corinthians 11 a number of times, as you gather together as a church. And what he says, quoting Jesus, this is my body which is for you. Do this. It's a command in remembrance of me. And this cup of the new covenant in my blood, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this, a command, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So these are the things, at a minimum, that Christ has commanded through the teaching of his apostles. We must read and preach the word of God. We must pray and sing according to the word of God. And we must see the word of God, as Martin Luther talked about, in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we also see descriptions of offerings being taken as well. So some would say that we can do, this is a debate throughout church history, we can do other things in corporate worship so long as they're not prohibited in the Word, while others say we shouldn't do things in corporate worship unless they are commanded in Scripture for New Covenant worship or that are obvious implications from the Scripture. I tend to think the second view is closer to the mark, that we should only do what is commanded, but we don't have an official stance on this at First Free. So what's the main application for us at First Free? We want to prioritize what is commanded and clear about corporate worship. And we want to minimize the things that are not commanded in Scripture. The Bible's not laid out an order of service for us in the New Testament. It doesn't tell us what time to meet, how long to meet. It doesn't spell out all of the forms, but it does give clear instructions on the elements of our worship. And we believe that we should therefore worship by the Word. Our worship should be regulated by the Bible because God has revealed in the Bible how we are to worship. It's critical that we're sincere, but sincerity, while essential, is not sufficient. Our worship must be in the way that God, the one that we are worshiping, has called us to worship. This will be for His glory. But one last thing I want to say. This will also be for our good. These are God's ways. And they will be a blessing to us if we engage in them. These elements of reading and preaching, praying and singing, observing the ordinances, these are God's means of grace, as the Reformers called them, to conform us into the image of Christ. The ways of helping the gospel, as our mission statement says, grow deep in God's people. So last week, where did we begin? Corporate worship is so important. Why is it so important? Because when we meet together as a church, we meet with God, we behold God so that we become like God, which is the purpose of our discipleship. 
But we could also say corporate worship is so important because these means that God has given not only to worship Him are means of helping us grow in discipleship as Christians. And they are concentrated. Look at all of the things God has commanded us to do that we're doing here that we can't do in other settings. There is, as I say sometimes, high caloric density in corporate worship. Great nutrition for becoming more like Jesus. It's not the only way that we grow as disciples, but it is a special way and therefore a way that we should prioritize. So let us come and worship God, first of all, because He's worthy of our worship. Let us worship Him for His glory, but let us also come to worship Him for our own good. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. We know that that redemption was for a purpose, that we may worship You. That we may become more like You. Thank You that You have not left us wandering what we are to do in our worship. That You have revealed that to us. I pray that we would be people who submit to Your agenda, who trust in the sufficiency of the Scriptures. And that while we have freedom in many of the particulars, that we would be faithful to prioritizing what Your Word prioritizes. In Jesus' name, Amen.